0: Testing 1, 2, 3. Testing 1, 2, 3. This is Radio Free Mormon, on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, Radio Free Mormon, Defender of the Faith, Lecture 6. As faithful listeners to this program know, back in 1989, 30 years ago, I taught an institute class at the University of Texas at Austin, dealing with the subject of defending the faith. There are a total of 12 such classes that I taught, I have already posted the first five lectures in that series, and tonight I will be posting the sixth lecture. This lecture deals primarily with prophecies of Joseph Smith, and defending Joseph Smith against claims that he was a false prophet because certain prophecies of his did not come to pass. Here I discuss prophecies in general, as well as going into detail on certain prophecies of Joseph Smith that are the most frequently attacked, including his Civil War prophecy, as well as his prophecy that the temple would be built in Jackson County, Missouri, in this generation, or in other words, in the generation in which Joseph Smith lived. I think you will find the contents of this lecture very interesting and perhaps very helpful if you seek to defend the church against criticisms by anti-Mormons. So return with us now to those thrilling days of yesteryear. Radio Free Mormon, Defender of the Faith, rides again. Play the tape.
1: Today we're going to be discussing... The subject of prophecy, and also, uh, particularly, prophecies of Joseph Smith. This is one of the main categories of criticisms or attacks against the church that's often raised. As a matter of fact, Dick Bear, he's one of the founders of Ex-Mormons for Jesus, which has changed its name, but still the same organization. I think it's called Ex-Mormon Christian Alliance now, because that sounds a little less antagonistic. Um, Has a whole method... Based upon this approach of Joseph Smith's prophecies, it's called the Kiss method of witnessing to Mormons, and it's K-I-S-S. And according to him, at least when he uses it, it doesn't stand for knights in Satan's service or anything like that. He has it standing for Keep It Simple, saint. and it deals with uh, just this and this line of attack. He had hit, excuse me, him thinking that uh, it's the most effective. Let me read to you scripture from the. Old Testament, Deuteronomy 18.20, which is invariably raised at the beginning of any such criticisms of Joseph Smith's prophecies. Deuteronomy 18.20 states, but the prophet... Oh, excuse me, 18.22? Yeah, let's just read 18.22, just that one verse. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing follow not, nor come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken, but the prophet has spoken it presumptuously, you shall not be afraid of him. So here is a test of prophets, which is brought up here by Moses, that uh, if a prophet prophesies something, and it doesn't come to pass, hey, there's your clue right there. He's not a prophet. And I say, he's not a prophet either. Why are you sitting here taking all my thunder? Okay. Well, not all of it, perhaps just a few reverberations of my thunder. (laughs) At any rate, uh, the first thing that I do want to bring up is uh, the fact that there are many prophecies that were made in the Bible that did not come to pass. Now, notice that I'm not calling them a false prophecy necessarily, because I think that there are true prophecies that come to pass. I think also that there are true prophecies that do not come to pass. I would also state that there are false prophecies that come to pass, and on the other hand, I think that there are false prophecies that do not come to pass. So how I'm distinguishing a true prophecy from a false prophecy is the source, a true prophecy being one whose source is God, a false prophecy is one whose source is something other than God, whether it be imagination or perhaps uh, an adverse force. At any rate, uh, many people who bring this up would like to think that judging a prophet is as simple as it's made out to be here. They would apply this test to Joseph Smith quite cavalierly, and in some places I think uh, you will agree before the class is over unfairly. And uh, they completely ignore it when it comes to the Bible, or at least they'll go through all sorts of contortions to get out of it. Let me give you uh, briefly, because I don't want to spend too much time on this part, 10, 10, unfulfilled prophecies from the Bible. All right. First, if we go to Genesis 17, verses 7 through 10 and verse 13, We find God making a covenant with Abraham. And the token of that covenant is circumcision. Genesis 17, 7 through 10. Here's God speaking: And I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant. Note the words, everlasting. Everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. And I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger, etc. Going down to verse 10 this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your seed after you. Every man child among you shall be circumcised. And then it goes down to verse 13 to show that the circumcision was the everlasting covenant, or at least the symbol of it. He that is born in your house and he that is bought with your money must needs be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. It seems quite simple here, uh, this statement that it's going to be an everlasting covenant and that circumcision is the token of that covenant. However, we find if we turn down to the New Testament, at least according to Paul, it's no longer necessary. It's done away with. The covenant, he says, is still there, but this token of circumcision is no longer necessary. Paul spiritualizes it and says it's a, it's a circumcision of the heart. And nevertheless, this fact that this everlasting covenant of circumcision was apparently not everlasting. It lasted from Abraham down to New Testament times, and then it was done away with as a token of the covenant. Uh, let's turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 13 and 16, where God makes a very special promise to David and Solomon, which was not fulfilled. Let's see, I said 2 Samuel. Okay. Wish I had my scriptures that had the tabs in them today. Okay. I think I know generally where it is, though. Samuel chapter 7, and verses 13 and also 16, where it says this. And this is Nathan speaking, the prophet of the Lord speaking for the Lord. Uh, He. And this is talking about Solomon. He's talking to David, referring to David's son, Solomon. He shall build a house for my name, talking about the temple, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So here's the Lord speaking through the prophet Nathan, promising that Solomon's kingdom would be established forever. And then in verse 16, he says the same thing to David. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. Even repeats it there for David. And yet, we know from our history, just what's recorded in the Bible, that that is not at all what happened. David's kingdom was established, Solomon continued it, and then what happened? Solomon's son Rehoboam, under his rule, because he was kind of heavy handed with the taxes, the nation was split so that there was one nation, Israel, on top, the other nation, Judah. Israel was destroyed in 721 by the Assyrians, carried away, and in 600 BC, uh, the bottom kingdom, Judah, was taken captive by the Babylonians. That's not exactly what I would call establishing a kingdom forever, at least not the way we understand those words generally. So once again, this promise in a prophecy made by a prophet of the Lord, Nathan, to uh, Solomon and David was not fulfilled. I'm not calling it a false prophecy note, but I'm simply saying it was not fulfilled. Exodus 19 and verse six, where it is stated, let me make sure who's, uh, Stating this, okay, this is the Lord speaking to Moses about the children of Israel. And he says, and you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And these are the words which you shall speak unto the children of Israel, speaking to Moses. Now that was the plan that God had. That was his plan that they become a kingdom of priests, but it didn't work out that way. All the men were supposed to have had the priesthood. That's not the way it worked out there was a slight small incident with the golden calf by Moses were the Levites. And it's because of that that they, that they, that that tribe got the priesthood. And they didn't become a nation of priests. And they didn't really become much of a holy nation either, at least not up to the present time. And so I would consider that also a prophecy that was not fulfilled. Number four, I'm going to go ahead and summarize some of these so we don't have to read all of them. We have to have some time left for the, the main part of the lesson. Uh, In Jeremiah chapter 34, verses 4 and 5, Jeremiah prophesied that King Zedekiah would, quote, die in peace, unquote. That was his prophecy for Zedekiah, and we should know who Zedekiah is, especially because he was the king who was ruling when the Book of Mormon opens. It's the same Zedekiah. However, that very book of Jeremiah informs us in chapter 52, verses 10 and 11, what the fate of Zedekiah was. Zedekiah, it says there, saw his son slain before his eyes. He was blinded chained and thrown into a prison where he died. Now, someone might quibble with me about my understanding of the words die in peace, but I don't consider that a very good fulfillment of that prophecy. Here's an interesting prophecy that I think everyone here is familiar with because it's so famous. Uh, In Genesis 49, verse 10, where Jacob's giving patriarchal blessings to his different sons, and he gives one to Judah. And we should at least be familiar with the ones to Judah and Joseph, I think, in this church. But Jacob prophesied that, quote, the scepter shall not depart from Judah till Shiloh come. Now, who is it talking about Shiloh? This is pretty generally understood. Right, Christ, Shiloh being a term for Christ there. And I don't think there's very much disputation in the Christian world about what that means. And yet, if we look at history and think about this prophecy, we know that Shiloh or Christ came in approximately 4 BC. That's the general consensus of the, the scholars. Zedekiah however, was the last king of Judah holding the scepter, and he died about 575 B.C. Thus, the lawgiver departed from Judah, and the scepter departed from Judah about 600 years before the coming of Shiloh. This appears to be another clear case of a prophecy that was not fulfilled. Matthew 24, 34 is uh, is another example. Uh, This is a, a statement of Christ. Let me go ahead and read this. You're probably familiar with this one where he's talking about the signs of the times to his apostles. And uh, chapter 24, verse 34, says this. Uh, he talks about the end of the world, the tribulation, the days uh, when the sun is darkened, moon not give her life, all these signs. And then he says in verse 34, he says, Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Well, let me tell you in fulfilled. And this is important to remember, especially this one, for a reason that will come up a little bit later, because we'll see something similar to that in a prophecy that was given to Joseph Smith. What's the reference to that? Uh, Matthew twenty four thirty four. Now, that's six so far, and to give you the last four, I'm going to go ahead and quote to you out of this unpublished manuscript written by me, and just a, a few of these, because this is probably the only time it will ever get any, any hearing. I doubt if it'll ever be published. But it's written to an individual named Bill, who wrote an anti-Mormon book. And he, uh, he came up with some things, too. Um, I'm quoting here from the manuscript. At the opening of your uh, answer, you haul out Deuteronomy 18.22, that old measuring rod of prophets, which does indeed say that it takes only one false prophecy to make a false prophet. The only problem with this measuring rod is that in the hands of children, it can often do more harm than good laying waste to many prophets who actually were true prophets of God. For example, if we say that any prophet who makes an incorrect prediction is a false prophet, then we will have to start tearing pages out of the Bible right and left. To wit, let's begin by tearing out the book of Ezekiel. That prophet made a scathing prophecy against the city of Tyre, saying that God would let Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, utterly destroy the city. You'll find that reference in Ezekiel 26, verses 1-14. History records that Nebuchadnezzar did indeed attack Tyre, but that in the end his attack utterly failed. The city remained and was not destroyed till hundreds of years later. In fact, Ezekiel, in chapter 29 of that book, prophesied against Egypt and said in effect that since the Lord promised Nebuchadnezzar that he would destroy Tyre and it did not come to pass, the Lord would let him destroy Egypt instead. Next we'll have to tear out the book of Isaiah, which is one that... Colleen mentioned. That great prophet prophesied the immediate death of King Hezekiah, and then the Lord permitted him to live for another 15 years. You'll find that account in 2 Kings chapter 20, verses 1 through 7, at which point I give my editorial comment here. What a shame, and Isaiah had so many important and beautiful prophecies concerning the coming of Jesus Christ and the millennium. Too bad this one incorrect prediction makes him a false prophet and renders all else he said void. Then we can tear out the book of Jonah. He was told to go to the city of Nineveh with God's message that, quote, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed, unquote. The people repented and the prophecy was not fulfilled. The last chapter points out that Jonah was greatly disappointed because Nineveh was not demolished as he had predicted. He was very upset about that because he looked like a total fool. The brother of the city had been destroyed even though he had repented. Finally, and this is number 10, and may I suggest with this, along with the other one that I gave you from the words of, the, of Jesus Christ, that these be used sparingly because they have a tendency to really make people crazy with madness. It's, it's one thing to be saying other prophets said things that didn't come to pass, but when you go to the Savior, that should only be used as an absolute last resort, as far as I'm concerned, and only by the power of the Spirit directing you. Finally, I'm quoting again. Finally, we'll have to tear out the entire New Testament, I suppose, since it is written entirely about a gentleman who claimed to be a prophet and the Son of God to boot, but who nevertheless made a false prophecy. So you could use that along with uh, Matthew twenty-four thirty-four as well. But that's not what this is talking about. This is from Matthew twelve thirty-eight through 40, and this is the quote. Then certain of the scribes and of the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. But he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and there shall be no sign given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth." Christ unequivocally said that he would be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. How long was he actually in the heart of the earth? He was put into the sepulchre on Friday afternoon and arose on Sunday morning. I think that would be generally admitted by all Christians. A little thought on the matter reveals the astonishing fact that whereas Christ prophesied three days and three nights, he was really in the heart of the earth for three days, but only two nights, Friday and Saturday night. Jesus Christ, the Savior, and by time he would be interred in the heart of the earth. So much for the teachings of Jesus Christ and the rest of the New Testament, for that matter, Since Jesus predicted incorrectly in this instance, all else he said or did or that was written about him by his followers must be discarded. You see what havoc little old Deuteronomy 20, 18 can wreak, Bill. Those are ten prophecies coming from the Bible that were not fulfilled. Now, there are different reasons I would submit to you why a prophecy may not come to pass, besides just the fact that it was a false prophecy. Let me make it perfectly clear. I'm in no way trying to undermine anyone's faith in the divinity of Christ or in the veracity of the words of any of the biblical prophets. What I am trying to make perfectly clear is that sometimes prophecies simply do not come to pass, and we humans don't always know the exact reasons why. Oftentimes it is possible that a true prophecy does come to pass, only we do not comprehend or understand the fulfillment when it occurs. In many cases, it it is quite probable that we simply misunderstand or misunderstood the nature of the prediction, so that when it does come to pass, we are still looking for a different type of fulfillment, which has not happened. When that different type of fulfillment fails to appear, we are all too prone to hastily label it as a false prophecy, when in actuality the prophecy may have been perfectly true, but our interpretation of it was an error. Still other times we tend to put unwarranted time restrictions, time restrictions on the predictions of the prophets, saying in our arrogance that if they have not yet come to pass, then they are false prophecies, when it is still possible that they may be fulfilled at some future date. Then there is a large class, I feel, perhaps the largest class of prophecies, which do not come to pass, which fail to come to pass due to the unworthiness of the promised recipients. A prophecy of good to to a group of people which doesn't come to pass because they didn't merit it. On the other hand, prophecies of destruction and death have been averted due to repentance and renewed righteousness of the people. And that is a good example, or Jonah, in other words, is a good example of that. It was prophesied that the city of Nineveh would be destroyed. And note, read that book, please. It's very short. It's not one of these terrible ones like Chronicles or anything. I mean, you can read it. There's a story. It's interesting, and and it's pretty brief. But uh, there's no condition attached to that, no express condition at all in that prophecy. He goes up there, the word of the Lord comes from and says, go teach these people and tell them that in 40 days, Nineveh is going to be destroyed. So it says, okay. And of course, he didn't just say, okay, he went running off, you know, in the, in the, the big fish and everything. But finally, he went out there and he, he talked to Nineveh and he said, 40 days, and you're going to be destroyed. And they took it to heart. They put on sackcloth ashes, they repented, they turned from their wickedness and the Lord said, great, this is what I wanted, you're not, they're not going to be destroyed. And... As I said before, Jonah was very upset. His prophecy didn't come to pass. He looked like a total idiot. At least he felt he did. So he's very upset with the Lord about that. But this is a good example of that. As a matter of fact, this principle, this principle of uh, good things, good prophecies not coming to pass because of wickedness, and bad things not coming to pass because of righteousness on the part of the people, is expressly enunciated within the pages of the Bible in Jeremiah chapter 18. And this is a very important reference to know. In this context, Um, Jeremiah, okay, chapter 18 and verses, let's see, 7 through 10. And note he says exactly what I have just told you here. At what instant I shall speak concerning a nation to pull down and to destroy it, if that nation against whom I have pronounced turn from their evil, I will repent of the evil that I thought to do unto them. And at what instant I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it, if it do evil in my sight, that it obey not my voice, then I will repent of the good wherewith I said I would benefit them. Keep that second part especially in mind, because that figures prominently. In the early history of the church, and the establishment of Zion, which was promised them, but was not fulfilled at that time. And the reason why is because of their their wickedness. They did evil in the sight of the Lord who would not keep his commandments which he had given them. Let's go on now to some particular criticisms of prophecies of Joseph Smith. Let me preface it by saying that Joseph Smith made more prophecies that saw literal fulfillment than any other prophet you're going to find in the Bible. And that includes Jesus Christ by a long shot. And I don't mean it at all to I mean Jesus Christ. I'm sure if someone gets a hold of it, it will be used in that way. But it's a fact. Well, the reason for that is because if you, if you read all the out loud, if you read all the words that
0: Christ spoke in the Testament, it takes, what, 30, 40, maybe, maybe 30 an hour. It's because we don't have the records, not because he didn't have you. prophecy.
1: Yeah, and we can we can feel that way. Of course, we got you know, no proof that there's anything else out there. And that's a good point. Of course, a lot of times, you know, that works against us. Because there's so much that Joseph Smith said just as, as a person, you know, that's kept and recorded, whereas Jesus Christ, you know, was cut out a long time ago, or any of his apostles. Um, however, this fact about all these prophecies that Joseph Smith made that came to pass is very often but by the record, who, of course, is a prominent anti-Mormon, very prominent, uh, is fond of saying that he formed a committee to study the prophecies of Joseph Smith. They found 62 of his prophecies, and uh, 58 of them failed, and only four of them came to pass, and they were very simple ones. And then he's often uh, fond of making a sard- sardonic statement that Jean Dixon has a better record than that. And uh, I don't know if she does, I kind of doubt it, but that's, kinda, that's irrelevant because what he's saying isn't true. Um, I have a book, which some of you may have read or seen, it's called The Prophecies of Joseph Smith. I would recommend this book to you. It was a study done about prophecies of Joseph Smith done by Duanus Crowder, who's a member of the church. And in addition to much other material within it, he records in documents 141 prophecies that Joseph Smith made and their literal fulfillment. 141 prophecies that Joseph Smith made that have already been fulfilled, that don't apply to future times yet, and can still see fulfillment in the future. First, we need to deal with a tremendous, tremendously uh, incredible prophecy that Joseph Smith made concerning the Civil War, section 87 of the Doctrine and Covenants, the prophecy on wars. Because this is such a remarkable prophecy for accuracy and fulfillment, and what it talks about, it is the anti-Mormons' first target when they begin talking about prophecies, because they have to do away with this immediately. They have to attack it and try and discredit it, because it is so remarkable. As a matter of fact, there was a circular that was distributed on campus by the Great Commission Fellowship on UT campus over here, which just had a few blurbs on it about, you know, how terrible Mormons are. and had one thing about Joseph Smith, and it said, uh, uh, I was quoting, although Joseph Smith guessed the coming of the Civil War, he got most of the details wrong, end quote. So first off, you have to understand the mindset. If Joseph Smith ever prophesies anything correctly, it's a guess. He guessed the coming of the Civil War. But then he got most of the details wrong, is what they say. which is not correct at all. He got the details right, which is what is what is amazing. But uh, that's the mindset. If he gets something right, he guessed it. If it's wrong, it's a prophecy. So you can come up with a lot more false prophecies in that way, I'm sure. Um, let's go ahead and turn to Section 87 and just read briefly the part of it that's uh, pertinent here. I'm sure you're all familiar with it where he says this, starting the verse 1, Verily thus saith the Lord concerning the wars that will shortly come to pass, beginning at the rebellion of South Carolina, which will eventually terminate in the death and misery of many souls. And the time will come that war will be poured out upon all nations, beginning at this place. For behold, the southern states will be divided against the northern states, and the southern states will call on other nations, even the nation of Great Britain, interesting detail, And they shall also call upon other nations in order to defend themselves against other nations. And then war shall be poured out upon all nations, etc. Basically, these first three verses deal with what we're talking about. Now, I have heard ministers, and I won't mention any names, but say that uh, Joseph Smith got details wrong, such as the fact when he said the southern states will call upon other nations, even the nation of Great Britain, for help. I wonder if they ever attended their history classes. Apparently not, because that is exactly what happened. They did call upon Great Britain for help. Another uh, line of attack that they will often use is to say, well, look, sure the Civil War happened, but it didn't end up being this great war that included all nations. It wasn't, you know, this little group here, over here, a bunch of states in the north and a bunch of states in the south. And yet that's not what the prophecy is stating, they yeah, would like it to say that, I'm sure, but that's not what it says. Um, where it says in verse 3, They shall also call upon other nations. In other words, Great Britain will also call upon other nations in order to defend themselves against other nations. Now that sounds very familiar to me. Especially if we think about World War uh, II. And I can't say exactly World War One, but I think that was probably a similar instance there, where they definitely needed other nations' help. And I can think of one nation in particular that they called upon because I'm a citizen of it. And then, war shall be poured out upon all nations. And I think we're living in a day where we're seeing that fulfilled. War is indeed being poured out upon all nations. So, I would say that that is a detail, several details right there, that are absolutely correct, that there's no way Joseph Smith could have known these. Now, generally, also, the main attack on this is that, well, this is something that was common knowledge back when this revelation was given. It was given December 25th, 1832. And I'll say, this is common knowledge. Everybody knew that there was troubles between the North and the South, and that there was certain to be a a schism between the two, and that war would break out. This is true. And I want to just deal with this um, briefly, at any rate. But the amazing thing is that Joseph Smith prophesied that war would occur for a completely different reason
0: than the reasons that existed then.
1: Okay? His reasoning he gave was different. And let me quote to you a little bit here. The fact that this was general knowledge at the time wasn't tried to cover up by Joseph Smith. He writes it in the history of the church in his own journal. This is found in Volume 1, page 301, where he writes this. Uh, the Prophet Joseph Smith wrote that the quote "appearances of trouble among the nations became more visible this season than they had previously been since the church began her journey out of the wilderness. The ravages of the cholera were frightful in almost all the large cities of the globe. The plague broke out in India while the United States, with all amid all of her pomp and greatness, was threatened with immediate dissolution. The people of South Carolina in convention assembled in November, passed ordinances, declaring their state a free and independent nation and appointed Thursday, the 31st day of January, 1833, as a day of humiliation and prayers to implore Almighty God to vouchsafe His blessings and restore liberty and happiness. For even then there were rumblings and South Carolina had shown the spirit of rebellion. It was not, however, and this is a point I want you to, to listen to especially, it was not how to predict in the detail which the Lord revealed to Joseph Smith what was shortly to come to pass as an outgrowth of the Civil War and the pouring out of war upon all nations. Now, Joseph Smith received this revelation. I want you to put yourself in, in his position, and I think this will be extremely enlightening. In 1832, he, put his, he, he received this revelation and wrote it down. It wasn't yet published. It was just simply in a manuscript form. And yet, a few months later, this whole thing blew over between the North and the South. It all blew over because it didn't happen. It didn't come to pass. And yet Joseph Smith sort of has this revelation he has written down that it was going
0: to come to pass, okay?
1: Everything is blown over. It's all fine. And by the reason, let me also... No, let me not get to that yet. Okay. Everything's all fine. The union's at peace again. And Joseph Smith has this revelation. What does he do? He did not try and hide it. He didn't try and, you know, just sort of say, you know, hide it away and tell anybody who knew about it, okay, I didn't receive this revelation. He went ahead and he published it anyway. And as a matter of fact, later on, in 1843, 11 years later, when the whole issue of nullification and cessation had apparently died away, the prophet again stated, this is from Doctrine and Covenants section uh, 130. Uh, I have to look it up here. Verses 12 and 13. It's also History of the Church, volume 5, page 324. It says, I prophesy... In the name of the Lord God, that the commencement of the difficulties which will cause much bloodshed previous to the coming of the Son of Man will be in South Carolina. He reaffirms it now, vocally. He has that much faith in the Lord's word, that even though, for all intents and purposes, it didn't come to pass, he's still going to stick by it. This is section 130 of the Doctrine and Covenants. That was verse 12, and I'm going to read verse 13 in a second. And This was given April 2nd, 1843. And then he gives the reason behind it. He says, it may probably, at any rate, what he thinks will be the reason, it may probably arise through the slave question. This a voice declared to me while I was praying earnestly on the subject, December 25th, 1832. So he relates this, uh, the reason behind it being the slave question, back to when he was praying on it in 1832. I'm not going to read this all to you because we've already taken up too much time. But uh, let me tell you what the problem was, just in case you don't remember, I certainly wouldn't remember unless I had done a little research on it. What the problem was between the northern states and the southern states in 1832, the problem had nothing to do with slavery, absolutely nothing. It was economical. Uh, The northern states were trying to institute tariffs under the Constitution for the entire federation, for the entire United States, and the southern states didn't want it because it was going to hurt their commerce. And so South Carolina said, if they don't lift this tariff, I mean, we're saying, hey, it doesn't apply to us. It's not going to apply to us. And if they don't lift it off by, uh, what was it, January 31st, 1833, then we're going to secede from the Union and take all the South with us. It was completely an economical question. Yet Joseph Smith says, no, it's going to uh, arise over the slave question. So in 1843, Joseph Smith reaffirms this prophecy and says, yes, it's still enforced. And we find out in the 1860 it did happen just the way he said it would. Let me quote briefly. from This is uh, the commentary on the Pearl of Great Christ by Smith and Stodol. I don't know how to pronounce that crazy Swedish name. I assume it's Swedish. S-J-O-D-A-H-L. But uh, this is what they say. While all of these differences existing between the North and the South had a tendency to drive the people apart, talking about the, uh, the economic things, Yet it was a question of slavery, and the contention over the expansion of new territory and the creation of new states and whether or not slavery should be permitted in such new territory, that became the crux which brought upon the people the great Civil War. South Carolina took the initiative. From a mere human point of view, this appeared improbable. The probability was that the northern states, conscious of their numerical and financial strength, would throw down the gauntlet. A bill was before Congress authorizing President Andrew Jackson to use force— in defense of the Union. But notwithstanding this, the North did not begin the war. South Carolina took the first step by recalling her representatives in the United States Senate November 10, 1860. This was followed by an ordinance of secession passed by the state legislature on the 17th of November the same year. And on the 12th of April, 1861, the first shot of the war was fired by General Beauregard against Fort Sumter. And thus the conflict was begun by South Carolina, as foretold by the Prophet, and not by any of the northern states, end quote. In conclusion on this, the main points to remember is that Joseph Smith stood by the prophecy even after it appeared to have not come to pass, and in so doing, God vindicated him when the Civil War broke out in 1860, which was 28 years after the original prophecy was given, and... 17 years after he reaffirmed it in section 130. Now that we've spent that much time on it, we have to go to what is doubtless the most often brought charge against the prophecies of Joseph Smith. Four times out of five at least, and probably nine times out of ten, if anything's brought up, it's going to deal with Zion, with the establishment of Zion in Jackson County, Missouri. Let me read for you an instance. Uh, there's so many things that people can get out of the revelations in Doctrine and Covenants. They stretch it as much as they can. Of course, they milk it to try and get as many, quote-unquote, false prophecies as they can. But, uh, for instance, from Doctrine and Covenants, section 45, verses 64 through 70, this was from an outline made up by a Church of Christ minister back in the 60s. A, it was to be a land of peace. It was, in fact, a land of bloodshed. B, it was to be a place of safety. It proved to be a place of danger and death. C, God's glory was to be there. It was not manifest. D, the terror of the Lord was to be there, but the citizens of Jackson County did not find itself. E, the wicked shall not come unto it, but the wicked did come into it and murdered many Mormons. They suffered exceedingly. F, did the wicked flee to Zion for safety? Rather, did not Zion flee. And G, have people from every nation gathered there. So there's seven right there. And he goes on at at length in other places here and gets many more things. But note that they all deal with the establishment of Zion. That's really the crux of the matter, the establishment of Zion in Jackson County, Missouri. Uh, Let me read to you from something that's being hidden here. Once again, back to the Mormon illusion. He brings up three, the author brings up three uh, such, uh, quote-unquote, false prophecies on pages 33 and 34. He says, uh, following are a few of Joseph Smith's prophecies that did not meet God's simple test of accuracy. One, concerning the new Jerusalem and its temple. Uh, con- according to this prophecy in Doctrine and Covenant, section 84, verses 1 through 5, given September 1832, the city and temple are to be built in Missouri in this generation. Remember that one? Go ahead and look it up, because that's what it says. Uh, section 84, verses 1 through 5. City and temple are to be built in Missouri in this generation. Then he goes on to conclude, the city was not built, the temple was not built in this generation. The prophecy was false. He then gives another one. He says number two here, which is the same type of idea. Zion, Missouri, cannot fall or be moved. Doctrine and Covenants, section 79. And yet uh, the saints had to flee. And a similar one also in number three, which is that the Nauvoo house is to belong to the Smith family forever. Doctrine and Covenants, uh, section 124, verses 56 through 60 uh, Joseph Smith was killed in 1844. The Mormons were driven from Nauvoo, and the house no longer belonged to the Smith family. This prophecy was false. Joseph Smith was a false prophet, unquote. So all these deal with the main idea of giving a certain area of land. One was in Nauvoo, but it's still basically the same idea for uh, an inheritance for the saints. A promise of Zion. A promise of a promised land. Okay. I'm going to make a couple of statements here. The first is... That from the very beginning of time, all holy men of God have sought for, for Zion, for a promised land. All of them have. And if you look, that's one of the requirements. That's one of the signs of a prophet you'll find as you look throughout your scriptures in the Bible and elsewhere. Unfortunately, very few have found it. As a matter of fact, only about one, maybe two. Enoch is the big example. He sought for Zion. He established it. And you notice, why did he establish it? Was it all his doing? He certainly played an important part, but there was another very important part there. The righteousness of the people. That wasn't Enoch's doing. I'm sure he could encourage them, and I'm sure he did, but it was ultimately their choice as to whether or not they would really fully obey God's laws, and they did. The city, as we know, was translated so as not to uh, uh, incur the wrath of God which uh, took place with the flood. The Mormons' experience with Zion was the exception, excuse me, was the rule, not the exception. In other words, all these other great prophets have always sought for Zion, they haven't found it. They've actually even been promised Zion, in a promised land, but they haven't found it. We find that the same thing happened to the Mormons. They were promised a promised land, but they didn't find it. We'll find eventually that the reasons that they that the Mormons didn't find Zion at that time was the same reason that holy prophets of old did not find an established sign. The very fact that Joseph Smith sought after it and tried to establish it is a witness that he really was a prophet of God. Look around you. How many people do you see trying to establish sign? You look at, I don't know, Jimmy Squaggart. Of course, he has other problems on his hands right now. But, you know, you don't see that. But This is a sign. Let me read to you from Doctrine and Covenants section 45, verses 11 through 14. 11 through 14, and here's what it says. And this is right when uh, the Lord is going to be introducing uh, Zion in the latter days for about the first time, I believe. This is what he says. Wherefore, hearken ye together, and let me show unto you even my wisdom, the wisdom of him whom ye say is the God of Enoch and his brethren, who were separated from the earth and were received unto myself, a city reserved until a day of righteousness shall come, a day which was sought for, by all holy men, and they found it not, because of wickedness and abominations, and confessed they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth, but obtained a promise that they should find it and see it in their flesh. This is exactly what happened. We find very similar statement made in Hebrews chapter eleven, which of course uh, is important. Because a number of people who are not members of the church don't accept Doctrine and Covenants as a revelation from God. But then again, we dealt with that problem in our very first class. At any rate, let's go to Hebrews. Chapter 11, verses 9 and 10. You'll find it not so clearly stated here, yet you can understand it here, I think, when you uh, have read Doctrine and Covenants, section 45. 9 and 10, let's start with that. By faith, speaking of Abraham, by faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. This is Abraham trying to establish Zion. We'll deal more with this just very soon. But also verses 13 through 16. These all died in faith, not having received the promises. Isn't that interesting? Promises were made to them, but they didn't receive them. But having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. Seek that, of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. And here in this statement, he's basically saying that, in my opinion anyway, that it was because of unrighteousness that they didn't obtain it. If they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have return. Let's take this now and go to the Old Testament, and let's trace this. This is something that goes clear back to Abraham and probably further, but it starts very clearly in the uh, Old Testament of Abraham. Genesis 17, verse 8. I said before I was going to do ten and prophecies. We're going to find them start piling up even more here. These are some prophecies I didn't go over before in promises of the Lord. I'm not sure there's that much distinction between the two. Okay, Genesis 17 and verse 8. And here's the Lord speaking to Abraham. This is part of the Abrahamic covenant. And I will give unto you and to your seed after you. I will give unto you and to your seed after you. The land wherein you are a stranger all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. What happened? Did Abraham ever get that land? Never. He You di- remember when he died, and his son Isaac had to go to some neighbors that they had? They didn't have a stitch of land, and so they had to go to some neighbors and ask them if they could bury Abraham in their cave. Machpelah is what they called it. They they allowed him to, so they got a place to bury him. Otherwise, they couldn't have buried Abraham, because they didn't have a stitch of land there. As of the time, Abraham died. That promise was made to Abraham. It didn't come to pass. The promise was renewed with Isaac. Genesis 26, verses 1 through 4. And there was a famine in the land, beside the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went into Abimelech, king of the Philistines, unto Gerar. The Lord appeared unto him, and said, Go not down into Egypt, but dwell in the land, which I shall tell thee of sojourn in this land and I will be with you and will bless you for unto you and unto your seed I will give all these countries and I will perform the oath which I swore unto Abraham your father and I will make your seed to multiply as the stars of heaven and will give unto your seed all these countries and in your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed once again renewing that promise to Isaac which hadn't been fulfilled in Abraham I will give you and your seed, this country, what happened? Isaac died. He was a stranger and a pilgrim in the land. He never had any land there either. He had to be buried in that same cave. Then that promise, having failed twice, at least as far as we see things, in chapter 28, verses 10 through 13, still in Genesis. And this is where Jacob has the vision, the ladder, Jacob's ladder. And it talks about the ladder and then it says, and behold, in verse 13, and behold, the Lord stood above it, the ladder, and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land whereon you lie, to thee will I give it, and to your seed. And it goes on. What happened with Jacob? Was that promise fulfilled? Did he get Zion? Did he get the promised land? No, he didn't. He died in Egypt if you recall. You all know the story. I can't go through it. There's a lot of history. You know, Joseph went into Egypt, became a big guy in Pharaoh's eyes, and brought his whole family down. Now they're not at all. They're not at all in the Promised Land. They're all in Egypt. And they're there for 400 years. For 400 years they're in in Egypt in bondage, right? God raises up Moses. Says, okay, time come for deliverance of my people. We're going to lead them out of Egypt and into the Promised Land. Finally, I'm going to fulfill the promises which I made to Abraham, and to Isaac, and to Jacob. And this is how he says it to Moses. He makes the exact same promise, and it appears he makes it to Moses as well, in Exodus chapter 6, and verses 3 through 8. And I appeared unto Abraham, God speaking, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob, by the name of God Almighty, but by my name Jehovah was I not known to them. And I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage, wherein they were strangers. God here himself self-confessing. They were strangers there. They didn't get that promised. And I have also heard the groanings of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians keep in bondage. And I have remembered my covenant. Wherefore, say unto the children of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will rid you out of their bondage. And I will redeem you with a stretched out arm and with great judgments. And I will take you to me for a people, and I will be to you a God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, which brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you in unto the land concerning the which I did swear to give it to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And I will give it to you for a heritage. I am the Lord. So now he apparently has made up his mind. Now we can do it. And I'm not trying to say here that God is being, you know, just can't make up his mind or or unable to fulfill his promise. The reason why in every instance was because of the wickedness of the people, that that promise was not fulfilled. And it kept being conferred. It said, okay, well, look, you were wicked here, but I'll defer it down to the next generation. You're wicked here, defer it to the next generation. You're wicked, you go into bondage in Egypt, I'll defer it for 400 years until you get uh, some sense into you. Okay, now it's time. You're you're humble enough. We're going to lead you out into the promised land. I'm going to give it to you for a heritage, which is what he just said here. Did that happen? No, that didn't happen either. Because once they got across uh, the wilderness, they got to the promised land. We all know what happened. They sent in twelve spies to scout out the territory. They brought back all sorts of great stuff to show us a great land, but unfortunately, they also saw a bunch of giants very big guys, look like they'd be tough to beat. And they came back and told that to the people and they said, no, we really don't have enough faith in the Lord. We don't think that he can really lead us enough to take care of these giants. Because of that lack of faith, we all know what happened to them. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years until they all died. So once again, this promise that we just read in Exodus chapter, what was it? 6 verses 3 through 8, that that God gave to Moses to give to the children of Israel wasn't fulfilled. It was not fulfilled. Because of their wickedness, their lack of faith, they all died in the wilderness, and there were only two who originally left from Egypt who made it into the promised land. Anybody tell me who those were? Good trivia question. Aaron, 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 no, Aaron died before Moses. Joshua's Joshua was one. Yes, Joshua was one, and let me think if I remember the other one. Um, can't remember right now and make them back to me, but there was another another one who was righteous enough. The only two they were the two spies who went in and came back and said, We can do it. And that those are the only two people who made it through the forty years and into the land. So eventually now, after those forty years, they make it into the, the land of promise. And I can't go into all this other stuff, but you know they didn't get it automatically. They had to fight for it every inch of the way. And it was only until the time of David, actually, that they kicked everybody out. and finally it was that long before they finally kicked all the inhabitants that had been there originally out and took the land for themselves, and then we know what happened under Solomon, and then under his son, and then it was divided, and, and so forth. But once again, the reason why these promises were not fulfilled was because of wickedness on the part of the people, otherwise God would have fulfilled those promises. And in the same way, Joseph Smith received revelations on Zion. He received the exact same types of promises, that Zion would be established in this generation, the temple would be built. These are promises that, that God made to Joseph Smith. And yet, it did not happen. And why not? Because of the wickedness of the people. And I just want to read here from Doctrine and Covenants section 105 verses 2 through 6. And we'll get right to that. Uh, 105 verses 2 through 6, where the Lord makes that very clear. That it was because of me. and to you. Were it not for the transgressions of my people, speaking concerning the church and not individuals, they might have been redeemed even now. But behold, they have not learned to be obedient to the things which I required at their hands, that are full of all manner of evil and do not impart of their substance as become saints to the poor and afflicted among them, and are not united according to the union required by the law of the celestial kingdom. And Zion cannot be built up unless it is by the principles of the law of the celestial kingdom. Otherwise, I cannot receive her unto myself and my people must needs be chastened until they learn obedience, if it must needs be by the things which they suffer. That is the main crux of the matter as to why they were not allowed to have Zion, why the promises weren't fulfilled. It's the same reason that the promises were not fulfilled to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, or Moses. It wasn't a reflection on them individually, their righteousness, or their prophetic status. It was a reflection on the people around them and their activities and their wickedness. Yes. Some of the property which was promised to the Smith family was given to them as a blessing. And we have the scripture which says there is a law irrevocably green heaven upon which all the blessings are predicated. The only way to get a blessing is by obedience to yes. the law. In other words, we read into that you are given this conditionally as long as you are obedient. Right. And many and many and I think most prophecies, at least of good or evil to a certain people or person, are predicated are, are obviously conditional. Yeah.
0: But any any letter
1: they say prophecy which uses the word blessing, uh-huh. uh, we automatically read into that as being conditional. And That's a good point. We immediately, of all people, should understand that, yeah. especially when reference to the uh, the verse that you just quoted from the Doctrine and Covenants. Well, believe it or not, I've got about quite as much material here, and I thought I would cover it all today. I have to go into this, not next week, because next week is spring break. As if I have to remind any of you or students about that. But the week after that. Um, there's a few more things I wanted to say about Zion, although I think we've covered the bulk of it, and I think it's pretty clear what happened. And I think it's pretty clear also what needs to happen before Zion can be established.
0: Even as it's been
1: prophesied. My only hope is my only hope is that, it, you know, from Abraham's promise to the time the children of Israel eventually went into the Promised Land and possessed it under Joshua, that was over 500 years. There will be less than 500 years between the time that, that Joseph Smith got that promise and the time that we'll be able and righteous enough and humble enough to go in and take uh, Jackson County, Missouri as our inheritance. A few other things, like I said, that I want to talk about next week. And then there are a few other... Um, uh, quote-unquote prophecies that Joseph Smith made. A lot of times when people criticize prophecies that Joseph Smith made, you look at them and you say, well, wait a second, that's not a prophecy in the first place. Or in the second place, you'll find that the source isn't Joseph Smith, it's someone very antagonistic to Joseph Smith, etc. But like I said, this these prophecies concerning Zion are legitimate prophecies, they're from a legitimate source of doctrine and covenant, and there's a legitimate reason why they didn't come to pass, and it's the same reason as in the Bible. And once again, if a person... Refuses to accept Joseph Smith as a prophet based upon that, and by the same token, if they're going to fare, they need to refuse to accept Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses as prophets on the exact same basis. And I'll wager to you that they would be unwilling to do that. We need to have a closing prayer. Mike, you're smiling. I guess you want to give it. Is that that what the small means? Okay, thank you.
0: So that concludes Lecture 6 of my 12 Lecture Institute class at the University of Texas at Austin, in the spring of 1989 that's about all for tonight until next time this is radio free mormon signing off the air